a long time ago on a spinner rack far, far away. The Comic Book Time Machine, episode 83, part of Ben's Marvel's Cosmic Comics series. Covering Marvel's licensed sci-fi comics from cover date June 1978. Featuring Star Wars, number 12, Godzilla, number 11, Human Fly, number 10, Man from Atlantis, number 5, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, John Carter, Warlord of Mars, issue number 13, and issue number 3 of both Devil Dinosaur and Machine Man. Hello, time travelers. It's me, Ben, Ben Avery, and I am here to travel back in time with you to look at some, well, old science fiction comics. And when I say old, I mean they're not too much younger than I am. And so I guess I'm calling myself old, too. Looking back to 1978, the books that we'll be covering in this next round uh, will all be from March of 1978. They're all released onto the stands in March of 1978. They all have a cover date of June 1978. The books we'll be covering in this round are Star Wars number 12, Godzilla number 11, Man from Atlantis number 5, uh, John Carter, Warlord of Mars number 13, The Human Fly number 10, and of course we'll take a look then at the uh, the third issue of Machine Man and Devil Dinosaur when we get into the Ben's bullpen bulletin segment of of this coverage, and we have one more book, uh, magazine really that does not have a cover date of June 1978. Actually, it has a uh, cover date of just well, actually there's no date on the cover, but it was released in 1978, and that is Marvel Super Special number three. And this is one I've been really looking forward to getting to. It'll be. Uh, It'll be right before I do the John Carter one, so it's it's still a few segments away. And if you're listening to this as they're released um, segment by segment, uh, you're going to have to wait to get to it. But uh, yeah, Marvel Super Special number three, Close Encounters of the Third Kind. It is full color adaptation, magazine size, and I'm not going to get into it too much other than to say Archie Goodwin was involved in it, and Walt Simonson and Klaus Janssen both involved with it as well. There's actually a pretty powerful team on the, on that book. And yeah, again, I, I'm waiting. I'm waiting. I'm not reading it yet. I'm, I'm going in order. I'm starting with Star Wars. I'm ending with John Carter and the weird off you know, issues they end up before John Carter, sometimes, sometimes I've done that after, but I've just learned that if I want to have a good experience, I need to start with Star Wars and with John Carter. I'm almost guaranteed that I'm going to love the beginning and the end. What happens in the middle happens in the middle, and I may not love it, but I'm enjoying it. I, I, I'm enjoying everything I've been reading in. And so I'm, I'm excited to, to read the adaptation of Close Encounters of the Third Kind. That's a movie that I really, really like. But um, we'll also 
in that Ben's bullpen bulletin episode with the devil dinosaur machine, man, I'll talk about the ads and the letters pages and, and the different uh, editorial copy that goes into each of these comics. Star Wars issue number 12 hit the stands on uh, May, May 14th, 1978. And like I said before, the, the cover date is June of 1978. And this issue picks up right where we left off with the last issue. Um, and where we last left our team, Luke was trapped on a water world with sea monsters and water. The reason he's there in the first place is he was scouting for a new rebel base and uh yeah he he's now just trapped on this planet meanwhile uh han solo princess leia chewbacca are trapped on a pirate ship they were looking for luke but uh princess leia was kidnapped by the pirates han solo and chewie were taken by the pirates so that they could uh take take more of the the rebel treasure that han solo had from before uh, so this issue, well, we finally see what Luke was up to since issue number seven. And I say what he was up to because basically before the cliffhanger from last issue, it seemed like he was just waiting, marooned, his ship was sinking in the water. Not not a great situation to be in. And now, uh, well, <laughs> out of the frying pan, as they say, uh, the ship is actually being pushed away by those sea monsters and a dragon lord. At least that's what he's called by some pirates who come by, not in boats, but in, in skiffs and in, in uh, basically water speeders, uh, similar to Luke's land speeder. He actually calls that out himself. That's, you know, skim over, uh, actually not skiffs. They're called skimmers. They skimmed over the water and Luke C3PO R2D2 they are taken prisoner by these sea pirates, and they are taken to a pirate village. This pirate village is a huge wooden pirate ship that is so enormous that the uh, the mast and the uh, what the sails hang from the, well, the spars, I think. The mast and the, the, the spars, or whatever it is that you call the things that the sails hang on. There's no sails. There's actually, like, little homes on these spars and and on the deck it's it's enormous but it's made out of wood and i'll talk about it later um the leader of this pirate village and maybe they aren't pirates they might just be scavengers just you know trying to eke out a life an existence uh he's a not so nice guy named quarg who he values metal over humanity and that's actually why they brought R2-D2 and C-3PO in the first place and then Luke along with them because Luke threatened them with his lightsaber if they didn't bring him along with them was because they lost some skimmers to one of those water dragons. And this was to make up for that. And so they brought in R2-D2 and C-3PO and Luke, he has told them that there's reason for them not to dismantle R2-D2 and C-3PO and Quarg is willing to listen but it had better be good. And so that's our cliffhanger for Luke Skywalker is can he talk himself out of this one? And he's you know wishing that he had uh, Han Solo's uh, gift of gab is what he says. Meanwhile, uh, we don't really see Princess Leia at all in this uh, issue. We only have a brief, uh, brief time with Chewbacca, and that's just with the pirates on, on this Star Destroyer. But uh, Han Solo is giving the coordinates to Luke's planet 
as the place that is housing the rebel treasure. And the pirate, Crimson Jack, wants that treasure. Meanwhile, Jolly, the uh, female crew member, has been she's been aroused by feelings of love and kissing or something. And she's causing all sorts of trouble in the galley. She mentioned kissing to one of the guys and the guy wanted to take her up on that. But she then was not willing to be party to that. And so she actually just flips things over in the galley, just goes crazy, I guess. And then smacks Han Solo for putting these thoughts in her head from kissing Princess Leia. And then they arrive and they say, wait a minute, this is a water world. How is there some sort of rebel treasure on this water world? It's a water world. And Han Solo says, I, yeah, I can explain everything as soon as you bring Princess Leia up here. And then he's thinking, boy, I wish I had my own gift of gab kind of thing. And that's our cliffhanger is that we have these two people in these situations where they have to talk themselves out of the situation. And how are they going to do it? Will they be able to do it? We'll find out next issue. And, you know, as I look at the story, there's a lot of elements that I really, really like for this story. The water world, for one. Um, I'm a fan of Aquaman, but not because I'm a fan of water settings. I'm a fan of what you can do with water settings. And Aquaman is a situation where you have him, the king of Atlantis, but he's a superhero above ground. He can talk to the fish, all these different things that they do with that water setting. I actually even like the movie Waterworld. Now, the movie Waterworld, this this comic reminds me of that. You have this group of people who have, it seems like they have lived on this ship it's it doesn't see it doesn't feel like they're stranded there this isn't like gilligan's island where they've been stranded on this planet and you know someone comes along like luke and they have to deal with who's this new guy coming along on on our island or on our planet instead it feels like they've developed a culture surviving on the water like this now i don't know what the background of the culture is here i don't know anything really about the background of these these people are they people who generations ago were stranded there are they survivors of a lost continent like atlantis or something like that there's there's it hasn't been revealed yet uh, and i'm i'm almost afraid that my imagination is taking this to places that are uh, going to end up being more exciting to me than the actual answers but you know you can't help that from happening. If you have a story that engages you and makes you curious and want to know what's going to happen next, want to know what happened in the past, a good story will do that. A great story will take it to places that will either surpass your imagination or at least meet with your imagination. We'll see what happens What happens here. But for the time being, uh, there's these little hints and clues, you know, like the, the clothing that they're wearing look like naval clothing. Uh, he looks the, the the mayor guy Quarg. He he looks like he's wearing clothes that would be like a naval commander in an old time uh, navy, uh, like a, a British navy in you know, the eighteen hundreds or something like that. And so it makes me wonder, well, why why is that like that? Why how are they on this huge enormous wooden ship that just looks like they built onto it and built you know, into this thing that it was never intended to be. But that reminds me of Waterworld, especially where you have like uh, the Waterworld, that village where the one tribe of people live, where they have the bartering and stuff like that, that <clears throat> was actually like a set that was built in. There was no CGI. It was all a set. 
And there's some impressive things about Waterworld. You know, there's some impressive things about Waterworld, not just how monumentally um, disappointing the ending was. But then you also have Anthony Hopkins, not Anthony Hopkins. um, Oh, Dennis Hopper. (laughs) You have him and his crew that are living on the oil tanker. And they've they've got a culture that has grown up and survived on this this oil tanker. And this they kind of remind me of Dennis Hopper and his crew from from Waterworld. Of course, this came first. But anyway, with the pirate village and the there's also references to legends of robots and the Jedi. They know about Jedi. They, they know that the Jedi were these warrior priests or wizards. And the one thing that's happened here, though, is that the concept is a little more interesting than the characters. The characters on this pirate village, they're defined by either being Quarg or being afraid of Quarg. There isn't any other, you know, definition of character here at all. And so it ends with Luke, you know, having to to talk his way out of things and we'll see what happens in the next issue. Then the other thing that's here is that you have a this idea of this dragon lord. And that's a the guy there's there's two sea monsters that appeared in the last issue and one of the sea monsters had a rider. Well, they refer to him as a dragon lord. And it seems like he is in control of the dragon thing that he's riding, but then it also seems like he's able to take control of the other one. And they actually then uh, are what fights against the the pirates on their skimmers. Then you have this. I find it to be a really cool concept of this pirate star destroyer. Now, I don't know how long they would be able to survive unnoticed with this star destroyer, but apparently they captured it after the first major rebellion victory. The star destroyer was weakened and its crew was, it it was a, a skeleton crew. And so they were able to take it over very easily. I just find that to be a really, really neat concept of this Star Destroyer going around the galaxy, capturing people. And the idea of some of the stories that you could do with a ship of that size and small pockets of crew, honestly, there's some cool ideas that you could do with that with like a generation ship. Uh, Star Destroyer, I think, would be big enough that you could actually have some generations of people surviving on on a ship like that. So anyway, this is another situation where uh, there's some interesting concepts. Now, it's not mind blowing concepts. It's not the kind of thing that create, you know, oh, this is going to be the best sci fi concept ever. You know, it's not like that, but it's interesting and I'm enjoying myself now with the story. Our credits are pretty much the same it's not exactly the same as the previous issue. This is our new team. This is Archie Goodwin as the writer and editor. You have Carmine Infantino and Terry Austin as the artists, John Costanza as a letterer and Janice Cohen as colorist and Jim Shooter as the consulting editor, which is nice to have a consulting editor and not just a, a writer editor. Uh, this is, this will be, it'll be good here. I think uh, the story I like the dual nature of the story. I like that both of the storylines that we have going on side by side end with a very similar cliffhanger. In fact, the one I already kind of alluded to this, but the one cliffhanger with Luke is he's he has a thought cloud and he's thinking, uh, I wish I had Han's gift of gab. 
And then you have Han, who is put in a situation where his gift of gab would come in handy, and he's worried that he's going to be able to get out of this situation. Uh, I like that. I like those elements. And I like the idea of, you know, dropping Luke on a water world, although that was, um, maybe how far back did that go? Did we, I think that this issue might've been the first that we knew of him being on a water world. Yeah. We just knew that he had disappeared. We didn't know what kind of world he was on as I'm flipping back here. But anyway, uh, that's, that's kind of cool because, you know, he has only known life on Tatooine where they had to, you know, farm the moisture from the air. The art, on the other hand, uh, Carmine Infantino, I like it, but it's weird because it's so angular and such a it's a caricature. You know, he's not drawing lifelike uh, likenesses of our characters. He's drawing these kind of caricatures of the character. And that's probably in a situation like this it might be the best way to go, uh, because that way. If you aren't on model for some panels, but are on other panels, that's just as jarring. But then if you're never on model, that's I hate it when I'm reading a comic and it never, ever looks like the the characters. Although I think we're going to be getting into a situation like that with the Marvel Super Special. But when they're allowed to have the characters look like the actors and they just can't because honestly, I think partially because they spend so much on the license that they can't afford uh, to, to get a super strong artist on it. And anyway, uh, this is the way to go, you know, stylize it. It's just, it takes a little getting used to. Um, and I, I'm getting used to it. I am. I, I feel like, you know, my, my first comic book that I remember was a Carmine Infantino Star Wars. And so it's not completely foreign to me. It just, it's very strange, especially coming off of the, the modern Marvel comics that are very much, well, you know, a lifelike likeness. So all things considered, though, I really enjoyed this issue. Strong start to June 1978. And next we're going to be talking about, uh, well, let's go with Godzilla. Godzilla number 11. Godzilla issue number 11 hit the stands March 7th, 1978, according to Mike's amazing world of comics. The cover date is, like all of these, June 1978. And our creative team, Doug Mensch, writer, Herb Trimpey, artist, Frank Kita, inker, Irv Watanabe, letterer, Mary Titus, colorist, and Archie Goodwin is our editor. And it's on the cover, we have the Battle of the Behemoths, and it's it looks like exactly what it's going to be. Uh, Godzilla is breathing fire at Red Ronin's head. Red Ronin is, uh, has the Yetragar in a headlock. And then you have four whitewater rafters heading toward the mess that is what i mean that pretty much sums up what's going to be happening in this issue four whitewater rafters caught in the middle of a giant monster slugfest now just real quick to, to talk about the art the art is the same it's really strong it's really good and 
you know, Godzilla still has his own look for this comic. And there's some elements of his face that almost look like a, I don't know, deformed goat or something like that. But, you know, truthfully, it's grown on me. And this Godzilla, I mean, he has his own, he's the comic book Godzilla. And just like there's the Hanna-Barbera Godzilla, which I, I, I enjoyed as a kid. I enjoy now, not as much, more for nostalgia than anything else. But then you have that kind of evolution of Godzilla's look over the years on film. And so to have him look different for the comic books, it makes sense. The look itself is a little, uh, I don't know, too stylized maybe. It's very different. And it does take some getting used to when you're used to seeing him on the, on the screen. I don't think that this look is the look that you have to give him because it's a comic book. I don't think this look is even the look you have to give Godzilla because of the style of Herb Trimpey. I mean, this isn't like Carmine Infantino doing his specific style with human characters and giving them his caricature of characteristics or whatever. No, this is Herb Trimpey redesigning and... I'm sure he could have done a more traditional-looking Godzilla in his own style, but instead he's he's redesigned and he's he's given it this this design and and you know sometimes I look at it and it's just a bit off, but it's always on model with what he started. So there there's I mean that's an important element to stay consistent and this the artwork for Godzilla King of the Monsters has stayed consistent and it's it's stayed strong. There has not been I don't think there's been a week weekly drawn issue of Godzilla King of the Monsters. So with uh, talk about the art out of the way here, the main thing I want to talk about is the story. And, you know, I've talked about what kind of Godzilla stories I like before. I like Godzilla stories or really any kind of kaiju monster movie or or story. It, It has to be good, but there's certain kinds of good that it has to be. You can have a great slugfest, and that's enough in some some regards. But usually what I want in a Godzilla movie is I want something to catch my interest. I want the human characters usually to be doing something that goes along with what's happening with the monsters. And in the – not the previous issue, but the, the issue before that where it's Godzilla takes Las Vegas, um, that one hit perfectly as this – dual storyline Godzilla on one hand and then the gambler on the other hand and for this one we have kind of three stories running concurrently we have Godzilla versus Yetrigar and Red Ronin actually I should say Godzilla versus Yetrigar versus Red Ronin they're all fighting each other and they all have different motives as they are fighting each other and then you have Dum Dum Dugan and Gabriel Jones and their own little kind of (laughs) It's almost like a, a a mini road trip. And then you have four whitewater rafters, like I said, that were on the cover who get caught in the middle of the monster slugfest. So starting with Dum Dum Dugan and Gabe Jones, it's mostly just them interacting with each other. You know, the super helicarrier that they built, the behemoth or whatever it was called, it, it was crashed. Uh, you know, Yetrigar uh, brought it down. And so now they're dealing with it and saying you know, there's a lot of repairs that have to happen and you know this thing keeps crashing well, no i guess 
is this the first time it crashed? I don't know. But this it's been slowed down before. They have to keep fixing it. And, man, I'm just thinking the money that's going into this thing and it hasn't really had a chance to um, fulfill its mission. And, and then they have to repair it again. That's not a bad thing, I guess, if you're trying to, you know, build up some sort of protection. Um, this, you know, you got to sink money into the stuff that you want to use. And so this is what they've chosen. But it's kind of uh, funny. I mean, between the helicarrier that was brought down in that issue with the champions and Hercules and Angel and them and this and just all the, the property damage that Godzilla and the other creatures have caused. I mean, we're looking at millions and millions of dollars that are being spent uh, to just run damage control behind the creatures in their wake. But I say it's a kind of a mini road trip because they then get on a little plane type of thing and they're going to follow Godzilla and Yetrigar while the giant helicarrier is being fixed by, by the shield agents that are working on it. And there's some, you know, it's interaction between the two of them. It's about uh, the, the main interaction is the Godzilla problem that I've talked about before that really stems from, I mean, I, I apply it to lots of different things, but it comes from how I noticed on the Godzilla cartoon, you know, every time they come across another monster, they're surprised. Like, that's not possible. It's not possible that there's a giant butterfly. And then they take out their remote control that they press a button and it summons, you know, a 30 story high lizard to come and help them. Like, you can't accept a giant butterfly while you're holding a remote control that calls Godzilla. And what's funny is that it's actually, uh, as they're talking about Yetrigar and the Yeti, Bigfoot, and, you know, is that thing really a Bigfoot? You know, it, it really could be. But it's so huge, and, and Dum Dum Dugan just can't accept it. And Gabe says, you know, <laughs> we're following a great big giant lizard that's only a few feet taller than this thing. And you can't accept that. And then Dum Dum Dugan brings up, you know, you probably believe in that Loch Ness monster. And Gabe's like, well, maybe, I don't know. I mean, Godzilla's real, so why not the Loch Ness monster? Uh, it was, so it's, it's interaction like that, mostly. There's not a lot of ideological arguing in this one. You know, Gabe doesn't, stand up for Godzilla and Dum Dum doesn't, you know, lay into Gabe for wanting Godzilla to survive. Uh, there's one other funny joke where uh, Gabe is piloting the little plane. He's like, yeah, I, they're going this way. I know they're heading toward the Grand Canyon. And, and Dum Dum Dugan's, well, how do you know? Is some sort of psychic link or something? You know, being all sarcastic and snarky. And, and Gabe's, no, I'm just following the footprints and the, the tail trail. So that's Dum Dum and Gabe. And, you know, they don't really serve much for this story, but they serve the over overarching story of, of the series. And then you have uh, Godzilla versus Yetrigar versus Red Ronin. The two monsters are battling each other, Godzilla and Yetrigar. And adolescent Rob Takaguchi is piloting this giant robot. He is connected to its nervous system or whatever you want to call it, its computer system that, that runs the thing. But, um, you know, he's, his peaceful beliefs are going to just the extreme here. He's not a pacifist, but he wants to fight to stop the fighting. So basically, whichever creature is about to hurt the other one, 
he steps in and tries to stop it. But by doing so, uh, he causes Yetrigar to get in a good swipe at Godzilla. So Godzilla is weakening. Um, Godzilla gets in a good swipe against Red Rover. I mean, they're, they're fighting, but as he's trying to just stop the fighting and be the peacemaker. He must be a, a middle child or something. But he's an only child. So anyway, but as he's stepping in between them trying to stop it, he's weakening himself. Godzilla is getting weakened. But meanwhile, Yetrigar, he's getting in some good shots and he is the strongest of the three of them. And so it comes down to Godzilla is down and tries to protect Red Ronin every once in a while, but he's weakening. Red Ronin is weakening. And Yetrigar is so strong that he can kill Godzilla. And so Rob has no choice. Rob's Red Ronin mech suit thing is so weak that the only way he can defend Godzilla against Yetrigar is that he must kill Yetrigar. Now, I'm trying to follow the logic here. And there is kind of, I guess, a childlike logic of Godzilla is my friend. Godzilla has helped protect me. I have protected him. We have at least some form of a bond here. And so the lesser of evils here is to kill the one that is not my friend to stop him from killing the one that is my friend. Now, if the tables were turned and Godzilla was trying to kill Yetrigar, I don't think that Red Ronin or Rob would have made that same choice of trying to kill Godzilla to protect Yetrigar. I, I don't know, because there's this kind of weird, I must kill the aggressor. And so that's why he's not a pacifist. He's not sitting back and saying no fighting. He's... He's choosing to just stop one side from hurting the other, no matter which side is going at the other one. But when push comes to shove, in the final analysis, he says, I'm going to have to kill Yatrigar. Now, through it all, though, we're getting great slugfest art from Herb Trimpey. We're getting, you know, avalanches in the Grand Canyon. We're getting... um, I think Red Ronin puts Yatrigar into, like, a a full Nelson... um, we're getting a, a great battle set against the Grand Canyon. And it's it's a lot of just dynamic, brilliant art that, that, that Herb Trimpey is, is creating here. And so you have, on the one hand, this kind of struggle, internal tension. But on the other hand, you have this pretty incredible looking battle. Uh, so then you have the Whitewater Rafters. And these are that's our third story element here. And this is kind of really you have two parallel stories. You can take Dum Dum and Gabe out and wouldn't even notice. You could take the Whitewater Rafters out and you wouldn't even notice. But the Whitewater Rafters story cannot would would not be what it is without Godzilla versus Yetrigar versus Red Ronin. The Whitewater Rafters, they come around the bend, and suddenly in front of them is this giant monster slugfest. This is not a good situation. Whitewater rafting is already pretty dangerous. And there's some interesting statements that this is making. And I wasn't sure where this was going. Uh, And that's what made this, uh, I think, the story most interesting is that I wasn't sure what they were doing with the whitewater rafters. At first, I think that it's just 70s sexism. All right. You've got the whitewater rafters. Two of them are men. Two of them are women. And as they come around and 
And they're just saying, oh, hang on. Yeah, this is great. You all right? I'm fine. Hang on. These whitewater rafters can get pretty rough, especially for you girls. In fact, right around the next bend, there's, and they come around and there's the monsters and they freak out, which is quite acceptable. They all freak out. All of them. And then there's a mini avalanche that's caused that capsizes their boat. And (laughs) there's a panel. Of the three monsters, you look at them and you see them through the rocks, and then you see the four rafters just lying on the ground. And the caption says this, And when the raft comes to a bouncing, skidding halt on the rocky shore, four young people in search of safe danger lie all too still, having learned there's no such thing. (laughs) And I'm thinking, wait, did, did they just die? Did they did they did this comic go there? I I can't believe this. Well, (laughs) they they didn't. Uh, It's a page turn away, at least in my collection. It is. Although it's yeah, it's it's a there's a page of Gabe and and Dum Dum that you have to get through before you get the page turn where you realize they are alive. Now, both men have been hurt. One has a broken leg. One has a broken arm. And. They have to get out of there. Their only way out, though, is past the monsters. And so they've been in search of this great adventure. And now they have, you know, but they were in search of the safe great adventure where they it was man against nature, but semi-contained, semi-controlled. And now they have no control over where they are going. The whitewater rafter, rafting was enough for them, you know, but it's. It's that safe, you know, it's like going on a safari, you know, in in the middle of Indiana where, yeah, there's lions there, but there's also, you know, a concrete little um, chasm that's between the road that you're driving on and the lions in their natural habitat, quote unquote. And for this, it's all of a sudden it is nature versus nature. I mean, aside from Red Ronin, you've got mammal giant mammal, giant lizard fighting for survival. And for these four young people to survive, they have to get past them. And so while the ringleader before was one of the men, now he has broken his leg and he is losing hope. He figures there is no way out of this. But then you have one of the women who is pushing and saying, no, no, we are doing this. We are getting out of here. We are going to make it alive. And it's I, I I expected it to maybe once I knew that they were alive, um, I expect I at first I thought, oh, this is just kind of a random thing. And that whole throwaway line about, you know, this is tough for you girls, you know, is 70s sexism. Well, now I realize it's not 70s sexism, it's 70s reaction to the sexism where you have him making that comment that a guy would say and maybe would say still today. But then you have the woman is going to prove him wrong. I just wasn't sure how that was going to play out. Of course, in between there, I thought they were dead. So there's there's also that. Uh, I thought they were dead, and then I thought, okay, now we're going to have this woman is proving them wrong. But what I found cool about it was the woman proved them wrong, not just by, oh, we can do anything you can do. It's just – and they didn't even say that. And that's I guess what I appreciate the most about this is they didn't even stop to say – Oh, you men, we can do anything you can do. No, it was they proved their steel will. 
And so you have this battle for survival going on above them, and now you have this battle of survival going on below. And the battle of survival going on below with these whitewater rafting kids or young young men and women, I guess maybe college age, maybe a little bit older than that. Although the one guy does look 30, so I, I don't know. But the battle that's going on below is this battle between we can do it, we must do it, and we can't do it, let's not do it. And so they're trying to, you know, get past them on the rocks. And then there's an avalanche that falls between them and their way out. We are going to go over the avalanche too. We can do it. And and other than that original little line about, you know, it's tough for you girls, uh, there isn't a lot of the whole battle of the sexes going on here. Uh, I mean, it's there. It's implied. The line was said, and so it's there. But I love how the guy with the broken leg, he falls. He's like, it's no use, Mary. I'll never make it. He's like, no. And so this is her response. No, where is your spirit of challenge now, Ron? You wanted to conquer the Colorado, defeat the Grand Canyon. So what do you want? Why do you want to quit now? As long as it's just a game, you're ready, willing, and able. But when your life goes on the line, you're ready and to fold up and quit. Is that what you want to do? Or do you want to face this real challenge and climb this lousy pile of rocks? And then he responds, all right, Mary. You've made your point. Let's go for it. And so I I just I, – I like that. I like their interaction and I like that they are pushing to survive. And so you have these two tales of the survival instinct. On the one side, you have these four people who are – you know they get rescued. Gabe and Dum Dum find them. It all comes together at the end, all these three plot lines. So you have this major victory for the four white raft, whitewater rafters. You have Dum Dum and Gabe – finding the monsters they they witness the death of yatrigar and then you have red ronin flying off uh rob just flying away because now he has to deal with the consequences of having just killed something he he's depressed you know, he actually says maybe we should just keep flying red ronin and never stop rob has crossed a line as much as i was surprised by the death of the four rafters or rather the the almost death the fake out death this whole thing of Rob wanting to keep the peace and, and he can't unless he kills is a very interesting twist for his character. And I'm not sure where they're going to take it, but I'm glad they went there. And this issue of Godzilla, King of the Monsters, it's up there. It's definitely in, in the top half. You know, I, I kind of defined one time. What was I defining? wish I could remember, but... Oh, it was the X-Files. On my Strangers and Aliens podcast, I was talking about the X-Files and how the first three episodes of the X-Files series, they fall into the good or great half rather than the okay and bad half. And, you know, as far as the Godzilla, King of the Monsters, this falls in on the good or great side. And it actually has some things to think about here. And I'm not sure (laughs) the things that it – the way it wants me to think about things as far as, you know, his – you know, his pacifism or his, again, again, it's not pacifism, but it doesn't really make sense. It's not logically consistent. But then again, people aren't logically consistent. And he's a child. And and so in, in that way, I guess it does, you know, there is a childlike logic to what he was trying to do. I must protect this abominable snowman because they're similar to man and they're, you know, they're, they're a mystery. And, but I also must protect Godzilla because I've, been trying to protect him for 12 issues now. So all things considered, I really enjoyed this issue of Godzilla, King of the Monsters. Uh, the next segment, next coming up, will be, oh, uh, let's go with Human Fly just to, to get that one out of the way. 
uh, after the debacle that we had with the last couple of issues. We'll see where Human Fly can go for us now. The Human Fly issue number 10 has a cover date of June 1978, but it was released to shelves March 7th of 1978, according to Mike's Amazing World of Comics, that amazing, amazing resource that was put on the web specifically for podcasters like me who need obscure details about obscure titles. Now, of course, there are the more popular titles up on Mike's Amazing World of Comics. Sure, you know, Amazing Spider-Man, they're all there. S- Action Comics featuring Superman, it's all there. But The Human Fly is also there with his, you know, couple years of, of comics from, from Marvel. And, of course, this is the wildest superhero ever because he's real. And more on that when we get to the letters page for what happens next. But let's talk about this issue. On the cover, it says, it's dark as a dungeon down in the mine. And we can see Human Fly swimming as rocks are falling past him. He is holding in his arm a miner of some sort. You can tell by his hat. And then there's also some wooden beams that are that are there. Just there, uh, you know, setting the scene for us. And... I'll I'll admit, you know what? The cover, it's kind of an exciting cover. It's a well-done cover. It's not busy. It's not wild. It's not, uh, you know, completely ridiculous or anything like that. It's just plain there. And it's good. It's, it's a good cover. Is it a great cover? No, no. Like if uh, I were compiling a list of the best covers ever, this would be one of the best covers ever on the human fly, <laughs> but you know, it, it just, it does its job. Well, you have a hero who's doing something heroic and there's things happening around him, but not too much. And this is a welcome change from the covers that we've had recently with the human fly. The question is, is it a welcome change in general? Is it a welcome change? Will this issue judging it by its cover? Will this issue be a welcome change? We've had some stinkers with Human Fly. I am not going to sugarcoat it at all. Now, him being a Human Fly, maybe he would appreciate the sugar, but uh, man, yeah, I, I'm not going to sugarcoat things. It hasn't been great. And there's a lot of potential with this character, as I've talked about many, many times. But at this point, late 70s, superheroics, it's a stuntman who is real you know, I'm I'm not expecting this to be, you know, one of the greatest titles of all time. I mean, we got some good comics from the 70s. I don't necessarily want The Human Fly to be some of those great, amazing titles that you think of when you think of, you know, you know Green Lantern and Green Arrow or, or the, well, maybe that's, is that the 60s? I mean, to check up and see. But, you know, some of the amazing runs that they had on like action comics and, and those kind of things. No, I don't expect that. I just want a good read and something that's not going to insult my intelligence, something that's not going to make me feel angry. And so we have this issue. It's dark as a dungeon down in the mine. As you probably guessed, this has to do with miners. Uh, The human fly is doing an exhibition at the United Mine Workers Fair. And so they're all around, standing around. He's doing a high dive into a pool. You know, actually one of those things, kind of a cliche 
from cartoons and stuff where you have the people go up, you know, a mile up into the air. They have a little tiny diving board that they jump off of and they land in a bucket, you know, and uh, but then be- right before they land, you know, Bugs Bunny scoots the bucket over and they just land right in the dirt. And so they're, you know, all the way up to their feet or something like that now. And I'll be quite honest. Um, I consider this a cliche stunt, not because I've seen it so many times, but because I've seen it in pop culture so many times in comics uh, and not in comic books, but in like comic strips and uh, you know cartoons, Looney Tunes and that kind of thing. I haven't ever experienced it in real life. I, I look at that and I look at them doing that. And I think to myself, that is ridiculous. That's uh, obviously an exaggeration in those cartoons uh, only to find out after reading this here and then checking it out. Uh, it's not an exaggeration when they're like jumping into the super shallow pools. Um, and I watched a YouTube video actually where a guy had a GoPro camera strapped to his chest as he did. It's terrifying. It is terrifying. And then to find out how it works, you're basically doing a belly flop. You're basically trying to spread out your body as much as possible to be able to um, get your uh, decelerate your fall as quickly as possible. So that's why they're able to land from these great heights in, you know, four to eight feet of water or even less sometimes with, you know, 80 to 140 feet in the air or something like that. I mean, it's just crazy, crazy. And uh, so Human Fly is doing this and his audience isn't all that impressed until he launches himself back up out of the pool all the way up to his starting point up on the ladder. So he that that impresses them and and lifts their spirits a little bit because they're and their spirits are down because quite possibly the mine is going to be closed very soon. And so we move from the stunt over to where Joe Shields and his son are confronting the mine owners and their own union rep who is on the side of the mine owners. And the mine owners are going to be closing down the mine. And the reason for this, they need to close down the mine before the federal government comes and inspects. And so the company wants to avoid safety violations and citations, but in order to avoid these safety violations and citations, basically all the people who are employed by the mine are going to lose their job. So Joe and his son decide they're going to get proof of these safety violations before the mine gets closed and get that proof to the federal government so that the mine can be taken care of, can be fixed up. The safety violations can be taken care of. The company can be penalized, but no one loses their job. And the, you know, yay, everyone's okay. Except for the mine owners who are corporate bad guys who care for nothing but themselves and money. Which, you know, that's not uncommon. It's a trope. And it's a trope that we find here in The Human Fly. The company, in keeping with their trope, have hired a man named Mr. Maddox, though. Mr. Maddox is planning to just straight up murder Joe and his son in the mine. Uh, He's going to use TNT to do it, which will actually cause the mine to have to be shut down because of that accident, which, you know, there's there's certain snags in the logic of the plan here, but not enough to cause anyone to say, I'm not going to go with this. It's a short story. It's 17 pages. Human Fly sees Maddox leave. He sees Maddox has a gun in his pocket, and he sees Maddox has uh, ill intention in his body language. And so he gets a feeling 
something's going wrong. He gets his team together. They jump in their van and they chase Mr. Maddox, who is chasing Joe and his son. They get to the mine. Joe and his son are already inside, getting ready to take pictures and stuff like that. Maddox has already strung up some of the TNT. Human Fly runs past Maddox into the mine to go and stop Joe and his his son, Ted. Uh, Ted is uh, Human Fly's mechanic with two prosthetic hands. He tackles Maddox, and they grapple with each other before Maddox can uh, activate the, bomb, the, the, the explosives. Unfortunately for Ted, Mr. Maddox throws Ted back. Ted lands on the plunger handle thing, and the TNT goes off. Human Fly, Joe, and his son are inside. Human Fly finds Joe and his son. They're trapped. You know, some of these crossbeams have fallen. And so using the same technique as his dive from before, he jumps off from a high point, lands on the crossbeam just enough to lodge it up in the air so that they can get Joe's father or, or get Joe. Uh, so Joe's son can pull Joe out. I think Joe's son is named Joe. Um, I flipped through the comic a couple times to try and track down Joe's son's name. And I it was a little confusing, but I think they're both named Joe, you know, kind of a Joe Jr., Joe Sr. kind of a situation. Anyway, from this point out, we are watching a survival story. Human Fly is trying to keep the younger Shields boy, keep his spirits up. Uh, Joe, the older, the elder, the senior, the father, he's unconscious. He's very, very hurt. So they have to drag him through. They have to pull themselves through through small areas of the mine and and they finally get to an an escape route where they are able to get outside and of course then you know you have your happy ending where the corporate guys get their comeuppance the oh that's the other thing is that during this whole time um the corporate guys are uh confronting uh human flies team and they've turned on their radio and so as the corporate guys are confronting human flies teams and saying, it doesn't matter. You know, we're going to give you our, our plan because we're just going to kill you anyway. Some of the miners back at the, at the, uh, the, the fair are listening to their radios in their trucks. And it actually goes like this. What you picking up, Roy? I don't know. I thought it was a radio play, a mystery show, but that there is Mr. Dukas's voice talking about killing the human fly and his crew. And so, uh, yeah, they're uh, they're going to kill the human fly and his crew. But because they heard that all of the miners end up at the mine, of course, there's now evidence, there's witnesses and everyone's OK from inside. Human fly walks out with the two people and the, <laughs> they, the way it all goes down then is they found a new seam of coal from the blast of TNT. And the mine is going to stay open safely because they're going to be able to get it taken care of and have the inspectors come. And yeah, everyone lives happily ever after, except for the, uh, the corporate, the corporate guys and their goons. And yeah, it ends with (laughs) flies manager saying, you're a hero fly again. We all are teammates. Except me, says Ted. Next time I'll look before I sit down on a detonator. Why not, 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 not. To uh, steal from my friend Steve from Strangers and Aliens. <laughs> but 
Um, so a couple thoughts about this issue of the human fly. Um, basically, dark as a dungeon, you know, I've read comics that have gotten, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Claustrophobic. This was not one of them, except for one point. I actually had a little bit of a physical reaction as they're like going through the mine. They come to a part where they have to go underwater and they don't know how long they're going to be going underwater. They just have this place where, uh, the, the top has fallen down and they have to go under that into the shaft, but the shaft has been filled with water and they have to swim horizontally across until they can come out in the air they have no choice other than to do this and so it's really tense for me because you have the hurt younger guy you have the human fly and then you have the unconscious joe they're pulling joe unconscious through the water that really bothered me uh, the other thing that bothers me is that whole high dive idea once I found out how real it was. I mean, I knew it was a real thing, but I didn't know how extreme they were taking this. And then watching that video on YouTube, that that freaked me out. But the way the art worked, it was actually really a nice sequence of the way he's jumping out. He's thinking as he's jumping. The people aren't impressed because it's a stunt they've seen before. But then he goes under the water and there's a spring loaded kind of thing under the water again. Some of the physics here doesn't exactly work for me. Something spring-loaded underneath water launching you out of the water. It seems to me that um, because of the water itself, that spring-loaded platform that would push him up would really have to have a lot of force because it's pushing up against the water. But it does, and it launches him up into the air. And the splash page where he's jumping, yeah, it's okay. But when he's launched into the air, yeah, I like that. It was kind of cool. And then they show him and I'm like, oh, he actually launches himself way back up to the platform. And so, yeah, kind of ridiculous. Yeah, kind of silly. Yeah. But you know what? That's the first scene. And I'm saying to myself, hey, that's not bad. That's not bad. Another semi-positive reaction that I had was Ted getting knocked back down on the ground, hits the, the detonator for the explosives and sets off the TNT. A poor guy. I mean, it's just a, it seems kind of, I, it's a surprising scene to see the good guy cause such a horrible thing to happen. Now, it's not that the good guy caused it, but normally you wouldn't put your hero in a situation where it's the hero who accidentally, you know, is a part of, of that horrible thing. And then, uh, oh, and there's no Ms. White. Uh, she's not in this issue. And, I don't know when she'll be coming back. Overall, though, this whole thing is kind of harmless. You know, it's not terrible. It's not so bad that it's good, but it's also not so bad that it's bad. It's a pretty much middle of the road issue and not enough of a diversion. And I actually kind of enjoyed some of the beats that happen here in the story. There are some ridiculous moments, like all the guys turning on their radios and just happening to hear the bad guys with their plan. You know, it's Scooby-Doo-ish and it's eight o'clock action adventure hour you know prime time on a friday night maybe i could see this really being kind of i mean this is a night rider story this is an a-team story it really reminds me of the a-team with the union element because the a-team used to help you know the common man and you have the, the union here and you know it's timely too i'm there were, you know, a, a couple mining accidents in the 70s. I shouldn't say a couple. There, there were a couple mining disasters in the 70s here in the United States. And I know that there were some miners uh, who went on strike in the 70s. And so it would have been a, a timely issue to be dealing with here. And maybe the unions more so even than the coal mining. But, yeah, it's it's harmless. 
it's it's not bad, not great. If this you know was a comic in your collection, read it. If you need something to read and you want something that's not going to make you, you know, throw it across the room in in anger. Now to flypapers, the letters page. Uh, they make an announcement here. It says, as we said somewhere, probably last issue, but you know how our memories are. This issue of The Human Fly would contain some exciting new announcements about our very real superhero. And it did. Last issue did have that. I remember from last issue. It says, first, on October 7th, 1977, The Fly attempted to set a world's record by rocket cycle leaping over 26 consecutive school buses. In a comics first, we'll be bringing you that story taken from real life right here in this mag next month. Secondly, also in Human Fly number 11, the Human Fly himself will be making a startling announcement of his own. That's right. We don't want to give it away, but the man himself will be giving you a hint about his own plans for the future on the very last page of our very next issue. Thirdly, but not least, we've actually begun work on a photo feature to be printed here in a few months. Not only does it feature the fly himself, but also his assistant and those zoological wonders that inhabit the Marvel bullpen. So stick with us, pilgrims. The very best is yet to come. And then as far as the letters go, um, it's a lot of the same kind of thing where, you know, we don't want to see him go up against supervillains. We want to see him go up against regular problems. And in this issue absolutely fits that mold and it wasn't terrible so print that on the on the uh collected edition of the human fly you know the the marvel omnibus human fly ben avery comic book time machine it wasn't terrible now they'd be taking it out of context because there have been some issues that have been terrible but this isn't one of them. So where do we go from here? Well, we go from someone doing a deep dive into a shallow pool to someone who's going to be doing a lot of swimming in a much deeper place, like the ocean. That's right, Man from Atlantis, issue number five. That's what we'll be talking about in our next segment. For this segment, we are talking about Man from Atlantis, issue number five. And this is the first in a three-part story, which I find kind of interesting. Um, you know, we've had some lengthy things going on with John Carter and Star Wars, but from our other licensed stuff, you know, we've only had two parters really, and sometimes even less than that with half issues and stuff. But yeah, here we are. Bill Mantlo wrote this one. Frank Robbins drew this one. Uh, Frank Springer was the inker. Joe Rosen, the letterer, Janice Cohen, the colorist, and of course, Archie Goodwin is our editor. And this one has the return of Scorba. Now, I don't know how you actually pronounce Scorba. I think I might have talked about this before because this is a character who appeared in issue number one, a villain who appeared in issue number one. It's spelled S-K-O-R-B-A, but the O has a slash through it, you know, like it's from some sort of uh, uh, Scandinavian country. Um I'm just going with Scorba right now. That's that's the best I can do. That's what I'm doing. And this issue was published during the hiatus where uh, the last uh, the last uh, episode of Man from Atlantis aired on December 13th of 1977. And another episode was not going to come until April 18th, 1978. So we're in the middle of that hiatus. 
And I'm not sure, but I have a feeling that that hiatus has something to do with why we aren't going to get too many more issues of this book. And I don't know exactly how many issues we have. I think it's going to end when we get to the end of this three-part story. I might be wrong. I don't remember exactly how many issues there are. I just know that I didn't have to work very hard to track them all down because there weren't that many to track down. The cover says the ray of red death. And in my thinking, when I was looking at that, I was thinking it was some sort of, you know, laser ray or something like that. But then there's bombs going off in the background. And then, you know, stupid me, I've read the issue now and I realize that it's no longer uh, the definition of the ray is no longer for me the laser ray, but instead like a manta ray. The cover is similar, actually, to the human fly issue that we just talked about. Uh, the cover artists on these two books are different, although uh, the writers on these two books were the same with Bill Mantlo. But Lee Elias was doing human fly, not Frank Robbins this time around. But the cover artist here is Pablo Marcos. And instead of having our hero swimming upward with someone under his arm in this issue, he's diving downward with someone under his arm. Now, human fly was doing a stunt dive. Uh, Mark Harris on the cover of this issue looks like he's just doing a stupid dive. Um, he is diving into water, but there is a rock right under him and right in front of him. And I just can't help thinking that this is pretty. I don't know where he's diving from, but it's a pretty poorly planned dive as behind him. You know, there's bombs being dropped by a flying mechanical manta ray with a drill at its nose. Maybe he's just diving desperately. But, um, yeah, this is this is poor planning for the diver and the person that he's holding under his arm, that person being Dr. Elizabeth. But the cover itself is exciting. And as much as they have going on here with lots of explosions and stuff, you have the two main characters who are diving downward in the foreground that really command all of your attention. And the busyness in the background isn't too distracting to make for a, a bad cover. It's just not a great one. Splash page says chapter one, a modern master of the world. And I think that that is referring to, um, is it HG? Well, no, Jules Verne's uh, master of the world, which is something I read long ago. And so I really should take the time to maybe look up what, um, what that story is about, but it's about a guy who's trying to take over the world. He's kind of a recluse. He's kind of a captain Nemo type. I wonder if captain Nemo is even in that. I don't know. I'm, I'm not going to speculate any further and make myself look foolish. Instead, I'm just going to talk about this comic and that that is more than likely a uh, inspiration behind Scorba. Scorba, the pirate. Now, the man from Atlantis is Mark Harris. Mark Harris has lost his memory. He does not know anything that happened to him before he washed up on a beach and was found by uh, Elizabeth. I think her last name is Morell. And now he... You know, he's working with the uh, Foundation for Oceanic Research. They have their own special submarine. They have their own underground base. They are basically good guy, underwater scientist versions of James Bond villains. They basically have all the James Bond villain trappings with a very, you know, a much better motive behind what they're doing. They want to study the ocean. And so having a underwater breathing man from Atlantis on their team is not a bad, not a bad uh, thing to have. 
what is a bad thing to have? Bombs being dropped above you, even if you are underwater and then underground. Uh, it is not good, and someone has targeted them perfectly. These bombs are dropping. Everyone is panicking. And then Mark Harris goes up above to find out what's going on. Uh, the, the Navy has scrambled some jets that are trying to fire on this thing. They are missing. As soon as Mark Harris comes up out of the water, a canister is dropped at his feet. A canister like the ones that they hold videotapes in, which in 1978, uh, you know, that reel-to-reel kind of thing that you would see, that's, that's what they're talking about. It looks like a film canister, uh, but it's got video inside. And so they go take a look at the video, the Red Ray, That's it's that red flying ship that looks like a manta ray has flown away and they look at the videotape and oh it's their old pal scorba who is demanding that mark harris help them he has escaped from prison and he has not escaped to do petty piracy anymore he has something much much grander in mind and he needs mark harris and he demands that mark harris help him or he will take the red ray and he will unleash it upon the world well, they scramble the Navy. They scramble ships and subs and planes to protect Mark Harris. But Mark Harris knows he needs to just give himself up to them, to Scorba and his people. And they they don't like the idea. And the, the Admiral, the Navy guy that they're talking to, the, the representative, he's saying, you know, I'm going to just go ahead and let you kind of go off with that plane, but we're going to keep our guys out there and we're going to, you know, so you can maybe give yourself up, but we're not going to stop defending uh, and, and not, we're not going to stop attacking. So if you give yourself up, it'll give us an opportunity to attack. Maybe that kind of thing. I've actually put more words to it than the guy in the comic did, but um, they end up getting attacked by the red Ray. Uh, it's, slams itself into the side of the foundation for oceanic research, the underground lab and pirates in red themed underwater goon gear, you know, straight from really straight from, you know, sixties Batman or um, almost anything where you, you, your villain has to have a theme. And then that theme gets passed on to his, his goons. And so in this case, it's red underwater, but they're pirates and they have stun guns and stuff and they stun everyone and then they threaten to kill them if Mark Harris doesn't come with them without a fight. And so they put a collar on Mark Harris's neck and they take him into the ray and start flying. Now, this collar has electrical shocks on it and we get a nice image here of Scorba sitting on basically a throne. He has a woman who is at his side, much the same way you would have a dog sitting beside you. The woman is pouring him a drink. She's also dressed in the red theme. Uh, her name is lady luck. And I'm not sure, but I think that she is meant to be of, uh, Asian descent. I mean, when I say Asian descent, I mean, she's from Japan or China. I don't know how she's being drawn other than given these kind of Asian, uh, features that that are really uh, vague and unfortunate. <laughs> I guess I'll put it that way. Uh, and her name's Lady Luck, so I'm thinking it's some sort of cliche stereotype 
um, probably from China, you know, because China has luck stuff, right? So luck. Yeah, let's do that. Anyway, I mean, there's there's all sorts of problems with this character that's sitting next to Scorba. And I mean, she's basically just an ornamental female. She is there to be by his side. She's also there to, you know, have an emotional reaction when they shock his his neck collar thing. And, you know, again, there's there's all sorts of problems with this character. Also, he seems to be pretty abusive towards her. So all sorts of problems just in general. Uh, they throw him into a, a cell, and when they finally get close to their destination, they open the cell. He needs water, so he pushes past, he escapes, opens up a hatch, and we get a panel of where they're going. Now, what Scorba told them they were going to do is they're going north. They're going up north to a tropical paradise. I'm thinking in my mind some sort of oh, global warming kind of thing. Maybe they're going to melt the ice caps. You know, that was a fear back then that the, the waters were going to rise to the point where, you know, by the year 2000, um, New York would be underwater, you know, that kind of thing. But nope, nope, it doesn't go there. Where it goes makes me excited for next issue because we are in a lost world scenario. We are looking down at volcanoes and dinosaurs. And so, you know, The Lost World, that's Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. And I don't know if he was the first one to do this, but he's the earliest one that I know of off the top of my head. He's also the most famous one for me, although Edgar Rice Burroughs also did some of this kind of thing with, uh, you know, center of the earth type of, of situations. But with Edgar, with uh, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, uh, his, his Professor Champion character went to this plateau. I believe it was in Antarctica, but it's this place where um, – it's it's basically lost world. It's it's um the same as Kazar, uh, who is from again south uh, in Antarctica, where there's this area that is just a tropical jungle. It's Warlord right? now. Warlord from DC Comics. You know you're going to the center of the Earth, but for this we are up toward the North Pole, and apparently there is some place up north that has retained enough moisture and heat over just the years that has allowed dinosaurs to remain and to roam freely. And here we have a story that, you know, Scorba and his uh, flying manta ray thing, that's something they couldn't really have done in the series Man from Atlantis on TV. Here, they don't have the effects budget and so they're able to do anything. So they do this and they have, you know, fighter jets and they have ships and they're not using stock footage because they can actually just draw it on the page. And they're not using poor, poor, poor special effects because they're able to just draw it on the page. And they're able to go to a lost world with dinosaurs and volcanoes and palm trees and all that stuff. And they're able to just draw it on the page. And so, I, yeah, I'm excited to see Mark Harris with his water powers and all that kind of thing going into this situation where he's basically in a jungle, probably with some lakes. There'll definitely be some swimming dinosaurs. I'm positive of that as well. But, you know, this is going to be fun. I hope. Now, getting there wasn't much fun. This one was just pure set up there wasn't a lot of real action that gets your heart pumping or anything it's just 
he gets they get attacked he gets captured he ends up in the dinosaur place there it is that's the issue but you know for three issue part a three part story uh this is a good issue number 1 because it certainly lets us know where they're taking it uh really don't have much more to say other than uh there is a one humorous moment where the accountant who runs the foundation for oceanic research cw he's answering like all these different phones it's cartoon it is a cartoon. He's answering all these phones. He's talking into all of them. He's saying, I have to give you a report. I know you want to report. I just, I don't have time to give you a report because I have to take care of things here. And he throws the phones. He says, if you don't, he says, I've already told all of you that I don't know why we were attacked. And I'm never going to find out why if you don't all ring off and let me do my job. I have never heard the phrase ring off used before, but I'm assuming ring off is some sort of phone related curse word. I don't know. And he throws all the phones against the wall. He's very, very shaken. And he's, he's, I'm supposed to be a high-paid bookkeeper in charge of a research foundation. But now the governor, the Navy, and every department head is calling to ask me, C.W. Crawford, how to react to an invasion. I'm allergic to invasions, Elizabeth. They give me hives. <laughs> it's, it's goofy. It's silly. But, you know, I like the line. I'm never going to hope that I hear it again, uh, but I, I don't mind it. And so, yeah, that's pretty much it. Uh, I'm excited to see where this is going. I'm excited. I mean, this issue five here, Mark Harris has not overstayed his welcome, and he has not given me a bad issue yet. Compared to Human Fly, this is a much more enjoyable series. But this is where they finally cut loose and say we're going to tell some stories that we can't tell on TV. We're not we don't have to tell the kind of stories they're telling on TV that are kind of these oh and the stories on TV. I just watched one. I might have talked about it on the last 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 uh segment that I that I talked about Man from Atlantis, but oh my goodness. It's all about the ocean is being drained through a hole. And the water is coming through, and it's coming through like a gold miner's uh, collect water collecting thing. And there is literally a guy on the other side who is mining for gold. He's an alien who lives on this alien planet. And so he's draining the ocean through this chute. And you want to know what they use for special effects for the water that's coming through the chute. Water, by the way, that's coming through so fast and so furious and with such force that it would rip a regular person apart. Now, not Mark Harris, because he has to jump in so he can help move the panel that comes down to shut off the chute. They have a, a giant corkscrew wheel that they're turning you know, with handles on it, but it gets stuck. He has to go in and fight against the current and push the thing up. And the special effects here for this water, it's ridiculous. Ridiculous, because they don't do anything. They don't do any kind of animated water. They don't do any kind of like real water. Just have real water going through there, flowing through there. It is literally nothing. It is Patrick Duffy pantomiming that he is fighting this forceful current of water coming toward him. It is literally pretend playtime. It is me 
as a five-year-old boy pretending that the stairs in my house are a waterfall and I'm pushing hard to climb up the stairs as imaginary water is pushing me back. And then I would slip and I would let myself slide down the stairs on my belly on the carpet. And then I'd start trying to do it again. But Patrick Duffy is doing this in a professionally produced television show. It is awful. It is so bad. It made me just cringe. And so once again, I say, if you want to get and see Man from Atlantis, get the TV movie collection. It's pretty good. It's a pretty good 70s sci-fi show. The TV series itself, it goes places. It goes to human fly type of places as far as the you know comic book goes. So that's it for coverage of Man from Atlantis number five. Next segment is going to be Marvel Super Special number three, which is an adaptation of Close Encounters of the Third Kind. So fair warning for this segment of the coverage of June 1978. Uh, first of all, this magazine that I'm covering, Marvel Super Special number three, Close Encounters of the Third Kind adaptation. It doesn't have a cover date. Um, so there's that. <laughs> and beyond that, uh, I'm covering it, though, because it was released to comic book shelves or to magazine shelves, I guess. This is a magazine sized book uh, on March 14th of 1978. So more of a fair warning. You are about to hear reminiscence. You are about to hear nostalgia and you are about to hear reflections on a movie that I have seen many, many, many times. Although this was for this recording, the first time I'd ever read this magazine. I forced myself when I purchased this magazine not to open it, not to read it, because I wanted this to be my first experience with it. I did flip through once. Uh, I also looked to see who the uh, credits uh, were and and who was who who had done this this book. Actually, let's go ahead and go there right now because the credits list here is impressive. Now this is 1978, and so it's edited and adapted by Archie Goodwin, who. Yeah, he's just all over the place right now. Illustrated by Walt Simonson and Klaus Janssen. Yes, I mean, we've got legends working on this book here. Colored by Mary Severin. Uh, lettered by Gaspar Saladino. Okay, we're out of the legend place because I don't I don't know that name. But um, yeah, uh, the cover has a painting by Bob Larkin. And yeah, this book. I'm. I'm just going to go ahead and go there right now. I'm going to take myself to this place right now, this place of nostalgia, this place of excitement and this place of, I, I I'm not going to be able to hide it. I, I might as well just start right now raving about this book. This adaptation is one of the best film to comic adaptations that I have read. Period. One of, the best. It is not the best. I'm not quite sure exactly what I would give the label of the best to. I know it's not this book. Okay. Uh, some of the best are uh, the Alien adaptation by actually by Archie Goodwin and uh, Walt Simonson. 
So there's that. Uh, and also Outland, uh, which uh, Jim Steranko did. Uh, the movie itself isn't bad, but the the adaptation is wonderful. And I, uh, I recommend it if you can get your hands on that. Uh, the, the alien one, uh, also just brilliant, brilliant adaptation. But here you have two people who really, really know their craft, Archie Goodwin and Walt Simonson. And now one interesting thing though, uh, I talk about characters being on model and looking like the people that they are, you know, that they're trying to draw from the, the live action presentation of the story. Well, in this case, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, uh, contractually, they could not look like the characters. I don't know how common that is. And so, you know, looking at the Star Wars comics, I, I they were really trying hard, especially in that adaptation, to make Luke, Leia, Han, especially in the early issues, I should say, of that adaptation, uh, look like the actors that portrayed those characters. And you see similar things in other adaptations where you can tell that they're trying uh, Star Trek. You know, they're, you can tell they're trying. They don't always do well. And usually I would attribute that to um, paying for a less talented artist who can't figure out how to um, do a caricature of the character. So it fits the medium and still looks like the character they're trying to draw. So, you know, they're able to stick with a style that looks like their style for the comic book without doing life drawing, so to speak. Well, for Close Encounters of the Third Kind, none of these characters look like the people from the movies. Uh, it, it just they, they just don't. And the, the, the main character, who is played by, by Richard Dreyfuss, um, he, Richard Dreyfuss has a manic energy, but he also has this, you know, he, he's not big. You know, in in the comic, though, he, he has some some beef to him. He, beef. I mean, it's fat. It, it's not muscle. So I don't know if, if beef is quite the right word, but um, he's a chubby, you know, working class guy who you know is, is living a middle class life and fits the character. I mean, it fits the character well if you were, you know, taking it from a novel. And doing this adaptation and then taking the novel and doing the uh, the movie with the, you know, with the actor who's going to fit that. By the way, the novel, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, is also a, a pretty good novel. I really liked it. And anyway, uh, the pacing is well done. Uh, now, they have plenty of room. There are 64 pages to tell this story. And in the back, Archie Goodwin, uh, similar to the note that he had in the adaptation of The Empire Strikes Back, he has a note here about adapting from one uh, medium to another medium. And so with this, they actually did, you know, drop scenes and they let other scenes, you know, go ahead and fill the whole page, you know, even though it's a minor thing. But, you know, the the, the movie opens up with a couple different UFO uh, experiences a couple different ufo um appearances and in the movie this going from place to place to place is a little jarring it's actually less jarring here because it happens at the page turn and you have the one thing happen and the other thing happen and and then you're just kind of rolling along with it now in a, in a nutshell if you haven't seen the movie i'm, I'm not going to 
um, get too much into the details of the plot because it is a pretty simple plot. Aliens are visiting our world. UFOs have come to our world and they have made contact with people and certain people, the right people who they have made contact with as far as visual contact, that close encounter of the, the second kind. They get visions of uh, a place and they want to go to this place. And so for our main character, Roy Neary, this means that he's obsessed with uh, making sculptures of Devil's Tower in in Wyoming. Meanwhile, there's a, a woman who's had a similar experience, uh, actually had the the encounter experience uh, with Roy. Her name's Jill. And in her case, uh, aliens have actually abducted her son. And so she is also obsessed with the sighting. She's obsessed with uh, Devil's Tower. And it turns out there's lots of people who have this same uh, kind of homing pigeon instinct to go to Devil's Tower. But the military aren't letting them. And so it becomes this kind of thing where Roy has <laughs> he's, he's lost his life. His wife has left him. His kids have left him. He is going to Devil's Tower because he is going to get to the bottom of this. Jill ends up coming along with him. There's a military cover-up. There's um, other sightings and other people who have made it that far. And the, the military cover-up is this kind of nerve gas cover story that the area has been affected by nerve gas and animals are dying. And there's actually dead animals on the road. And, uh, you know, in the movie, they have a, a canary with them and they're going through the area and the military stop them. And the canary is fine. And the military guys are all wearing their their gas masks and they pull out uh, the cage with the canary and the canary's dead. Well, is it dead because of nerve gas or is it dead because the military people killed it? There's also a third character who's a scientist. And I mean, there's there's lots and lots of characters, but the, the third primary focus character is the scientist. So we can see all of the backside of things as they are discovering what these uh, sightings mean, what there's this five notes, uh, a message. Um, what does that mean? There's also these coordinates of a message that are, are beamed to to them. And what does that mean? And, and so they're figuring out how this all fits together and where the aliens are coming, of course, through science and through, you know, faith, basically obsessive faith in this thing that's bigger than us. They're both led to this, the both groups of people, the civilians and the scientists and the military are all led to the same place, the Devil's Tower. And that's where you have this wonderful wonderfully orchestrated and scored um scene but then also with some pretty amazing special effects of a ufo unlike any any ufo uh scene on on film it's it's huge it's brilliant it's glorious and and that's a, a part of this movie is that there's this horror element toward the beginning but then you get toward the end and it's kind of this almost religious experience and We'll get into why I like the movie so much, I'm sure, as I continue talking about this. But uh, with the the art, it's great. It's Walt Simonson. And there's some interesting uh, devices for, for the lights and everything. And, and how do you make the, these brilliant lights that the lights are so brilliant that they shield the actual shape of the, the UFOs as they're flying around and whizzing around? Um, 
it, it does lose something. It's not a perfect adaptation. There are some loss of story elements or cute moments like with the a cute small little UFO that kind of stops. And, and you know, those elements are lost. But they keep all the character elements, the primary character elements. Now, they have 64 pages. Also, they use caption boxes. And the art does not and cannot stand alone in telling the story. Now, and I won't, won't go so far as to say that the, the, the comic is as good as the movie. I feel like the movie itself is one of the best science fiction movies out there. You know, definitely a top 100 kind of thing. I, I really like the movie. Um, my nostalgia for the movie largely comes from seeing this, you know, as a, you know, 1993 or 94 as a college student. I hadn't seen it before. And, you know, E.T. I had seen you know, half a dozen, maybe a dozen times by that point. Uh, I knew about Close Encounters of the Third Kind and had seen scenes from Close Encounters of the Third Kind in those, you know, specials that used to be on TV where they're talking about special effects. And, you know, Mark Hamill and R2-D2 are basically promoting Empire Strikes Back, but they're talking about all these old movies and aliens and how did they make those alien effects work and that kind of thing. One day I went into a video store, a blockbuster video near my home, I was, I think, home for Christmas, and in the video store, I looked up at the screen, and it, they were playing Close Encounters of the Third Kind on the TV monitors, and I asked what the movie was. They told me. I said, yeah, I'd like to see that. Could I rent that? And they went, rewound it, took it out of the machine, gave it to me, and let me rent it, and I really, really enjoyed it. I really, really enjoyed that movie, and I think part of it is the idea of you know, for me as a college student trying to find my place in this world and you have this you know, middle-aged man, but I'm, I'm, I'm looking at him and him discovering that the world is a much, much bigger place, far bigger than he could possibly imagine. And just going out and, and throwing himself into the search for you know, what it all means and leaving everything behind to find the explanation and to explore this brave, new, scary but beautiful world. Now, it wasn't until years, years later that I was talking about this with some friends and like, yeah, that's great and all, but you realize he left behind his family, his children, his wife. And of course, his wife left him first, but that doesn't mean that he didn't leave behind, you know, all of his parental responsibilities. So there, there is some problems with the, you know, there is no such thing as a perfect metaphor, right? I mean, so I'm, I myself am finding myself or did find myself drawn to the positive side of what he was doing uh, as far as a, an obsessed, nearly insane man uh, can be a positive role model. But yeah, uh, so the other thing that was kind of funny is I watched it again not long after that when I had a friend come and visit and we watched it together and then we were downstairs in my basement where my room was and it gets pitch black down there. And my brother came down in the morning to wake us up. He had been sick. Uh, so he was kind of walking funny and he was looking a little gaunt and he turned the lights on in the stairway. And so all of a sudden my buddy looks up and sees this silhouette, this strangely elongated silhouette shadow 
coming down toward us in the stairs and it freaked him out. It was one of my favorite memories of, you know, just hanging out with that guy. And I have a lot of favorite memories with him. He's a good friend, but it was really, really funny. But again, it's it's one of those nostalgia things. This, this movie has a kind of weird removed nostalgia for me because I didn't see it until, you know, the 90s. But it's about the 70s and takes place in the 70s and is filmed in the 70s. And there's just something about watching the movie that takes me to a place that I kind of halfway experienced as a child. But didn't quite really. And then there's also the connection to E.T., which E.T., if you want to hit all of my nostalgia buttons, that is the movie. I mean, that came out the summer, the perfect summer for me. And somehow, some way, this didn't even happen with Star Wars. I saw E.T. in the, in the theaters twice in the same summer. And then we saw it again a couple years later when it was released. So anyway, this movie was directed by Steven Spielberg. And it's also one of the first movies that I ever knew of that had a special edition where they added scenes in and re-released it a few years later. And now there's the director's cut, which, you know, everything has a director's cut, but the director's cut takes the original and the special edition kind of merges them together. And of course I have the, uh, the special 30th anniversary edition that they did. And I mean, I bought that thing as soon as it came out, as soon as it came out, it was in my grubby little hands and it comes with a poster. It has all of these uh, timelines of the movie explaining what scenes are only in the original edition and then what scenes are adjusted for the special edition and then what scenes are removed and added back in for the director's cut as a special booklet with it. It has three discs because it's DVD. I didn't get the Blu-ray. I'm not even sure in 2008 if they had a Blu-ray, but I'm sure there's a Blu-ray edition of this out there somewhere now. But anyway, uh, the bottom line is this is a movie I really, really enjoy. And reading this comic was something that I really, really enjoyed as well. Now, sometimes a comic has uh, basically it's the only place you can find deleted scenes, the comic or the novelization, because they use a earlier draft of the script. That's not the case for this one, really. Um, it was when it first came out, because there were a couple scenes that they used on the draft from the script specifically because it added something to the character and allowed them to present something with the character. But then in the special edition that was reinserted. And so, you know, the impulse that they had to use that scene, even though it wasn't going to be in the movie, it turns out Spielberg did the same kind of thing. And Archie Goodwin, he details a couple of those kind of things in here. One of the things he also mentions is, uh, you know, I was talking about how they were traveling and they had the canary and the canary was put to sleep or killed by gas. In here, they have a scene where they're driving along and they're discussing, well, did the military, they're, they're bluffing. And then they see these dead animals on the side of the road and it turns out, well, maybe they're not bluffing. And so what they end up doing in the movie is they start, you know, scrambling to get their gas masks and put their gas masks on and they're having a hard time doing it. But in the book, the comic here, it's done in two panels where they just kind of the car goes past the dead animals. Uh, uh, Jill and Roy look at each other in one panel and the next panel, they're wearing gas masks. And it works brilliantly because they are telling the story using this medium and not trying to emulate another medium. And and it works. This is one that I would say is one to look at as an example to study and and see how they did it. Um, 
there's parts of it that are more dynamic than they were in the movie because the the panels of the comic are finding that moment of drama. And also it's Walt Simonson and he's drawing his his character of of Jill. You know, I'll, I'll just put it out there. She's she's curvier than than Melinda Dillon, the actress who played uh, uh, Jill in the in the movie. She's she's got comic book curves. And and then when they're, you know, op- opening doors and or slamming doors or jumping out of uh, you know the helicopter, it's it's done dynamically. And. It's it's so it's different. And the other big difference is the music. First of all, no comic has the same music <laughs> because there is no music. But this is an interesting one, and I wasn't sure how they would tackle it. And basically, they do it through captioning. But this is a story that just uses music as a an important uh, plot point. It's it's a plot point in in that they are being communicated with these tones, but then they use those tones to communicate back, and the music itself then also um, when you wish upon a star. And I was I guess it was a special edition add in. It wasn't as obvious in the earlier, uh, the the original edition, but that is a part of the the musical score. But then you also have these these five notes that I'm I'm going to play for you right now. I'm sure you have heard this music before. If you are a fan of science fiction, you have probably seen something using this, or maybe you've heard a parody of it. But I can't think of any movie other than a musical where music has had such an important part in the actual story itself. And that's something that, yeah, as wonderful as this comic is, they just cannot cannot possibly overcome the lack of an audio soundtrack. Now, apparently it's not just the soundtrack. Now, I have only experienced this on VHS on my small TV in my family's house and now on DVD. But so I've experienced it with that tiny, you know, the tiny little stereo speakers that are on the TV that weren't bad, but they weren't anything special. And then experienced it on a TV with a decent sound system. But apparently the Dolby stereo or whatever it is they use was very, very, I don't know about ahead of its time, but it definitely used the the technology to the, the full extent that it could be used when it played in theaters. So do I recommend Close Encounters of the Third Kind as a comic that you should track down and read? I don't know if I would recommend it as something you should track down, but if it's something that you come across, read it. It's really, really good. And just a very, very strong adaptation. Uh, You know, I look at Jack Kirby's 2001 adaptation. That's something I'll pull out because it's so crazy compared to the original. And with Close Encounters of the Third Kind, this one, I'll probably read it again. But I almost think this is something that could be used as a textbook example of how to adapt a movie to a comic. It's just really, really well done the way that they pick and choose. They don't feel like they have to shoehorn every single scene into it, which is something I might add. 
I am guilty of when I do my adaptations. When I did the Hedge Knight and the Hedge Knight 2 and the Hedge Knight 3, my job was to, you know, let the story be there. I put in every scene. Um, I didn't add much. I just tried to make sure that it was George Martin's work and not mine that was going to the page. And the same with some of the other adaptations that I've worked on. But the one that I couldn't do that with was, I think it was a 28-page story based on a man's biography that was two volumes. And each volume was like 150 pages. So that was picking and choosing and, and trying to find, you know, like with this. And it's, it's not easy to do, but this here is a great example of how it works. They're finding those emotional moments, those emotional uh, points where you can just grab the reader with incredible visuals or emotional visuals. And they do both here. The reveal of the UFO when it comes to Devil's Tower, it's a wonderful, colorful two-page splash. And that's something else I want to say about the colors is, you know, with all of the materials that I've seen for Close Encounters of the Third Kind, there's a lot of reds and a lot of blues in the logo and in the poster and in the cover of this book itself. Uh, Mary Severin, especially when dealing with the lights and the alien ships themselves really uses a palette that goes along with that. So purples, light purples, uh, light pinks, and then blues. And it's just, it's just a really, really well done comic. I would say if you have not seen the movie, this comic would stand alone as a very strong read. I think that anyone picks it up who is into this kind of thing. You have to be into this kind of thing. But if you do like, you know, science fiction stories and that the deal with, you know, UFOs, abductions, the 70s, whatever, uh, you'd enjoy this. Even if you haven't seen the movie, if you have seen the movie, I think if you've seen the movie and like the movie, I think you would like this adaptation. It, it, it works well and, and it's a nice supplement to the movie itself. So there you have it. Close Encounters. Of the third kind, this segment comes to a close. Next segment, I will be reading John Carter, Warlord of Mars, issue number 13. I'm excited to get back into that. Um, we left him off in a pretty tight spot. And, you know, I, I don't care how he gets out of the tight spot. I just want him to be in a decent story <laughs> once he gets out of that tight spot. So I know he's going to get out of the tight spot. Anyway. Uh, that that brings this segment to a close. It's time to move on to some John Carter, Warlord of Mars. I've been kind of rounding off my regular reading, my in-depth reading with John Carter, Warlord of Mars, since almost the beginning, almost every month, for one reason and one reason only. I'm starting the month with Star Wars because... That's why I'm doing this podcast, and I end with John Carter because I almost always end with a very exciting, fun, and interesting read. So the question is, for John Carter, Warlord of Mars, issue number 13, am I continuing the trend? And the answer is probably not going to be a surprise because 
John Carter, Warlord of Mars, has stopped surprising me. How has it stopped surprising me? By giving me things that I enjoy. And I'm no longer like, wow, this was so good. I can't believe how good this is. Wow, this is so great. I can't believe how great this is. Instead, I'm reading it and thinking, wow, this is still great. Cool. I'm glad. Uh, This issue, according to Mike's Amazing World of Comics, which you can find at uh, dcindexes.com, that's my source for almost all the information I get about release dates and that kind of thing. This issue covered at June 1978. The on sale date was March 28th, 1978. The cover price was 35 cents and the page count, including ads and all that, 32. The editor is Marv Wolfman. The writer is Marv Wolfman. The penciler is Carmine Infantino. The inker, Rudy Nebrez. Letterer, John Costanza. And colorist, Michelle Wolfman. And so we begin this story, 17 pages of story, 35 cents. That is two pages per penny that you would have spent on this from the shelf if you had gotten into your time machine and gone back in time. That is one penny for the cover. I still can't get over the value here. And what's funny about it to me is, you know, you see complaints in the letters pages and you see them prepping people for the the price hikes that come after, you know, in years to come. And but the, the value here, two pennies per page for that story. The question is, is it worth it? Was it worth firing up the time machine, going back in time, reading all these comics that I just read, Star Wars, Man from Atlantis, all that, and John Carter, Warlord of Mars? Well, for me, of course, my time machine is a hardcover omnibus volume. If you want to get literal about things and, you know, step away from the fun metaphor that, you know, the, the comic book time machine. But uh, I can't believe the steal that this book was. Now, the original cover price of this book was, I believe, $100. And then I got it for a mere $25, $25 for this hardcover volume that collects all of the John Carter Warlord of Mars issues. Uh, when it comes right down to it, I, don't, I haven't even counted the issues, at least recent enough that I could remember. But um, flipping here, well, that's the annual, so that doesn't count. But there are three annuals. So 31, 31 issues, if you include the three annuals. And I, I paid 25 bucks. I mean, that's less than a dollar per issue. So was it worth it for me to jump into this time machine? You betcha. This is something that I will go back and read. Now I'm reading one issue at a time and not reading ahead as I go along. But when I'm done with this, because this will be done before this podcast series is done, unless something happens where something happens, unforeseeable. And of course, as we are time traveling into the future, unforeseeable things happen all the time. But if nothing unforeseeable happens and I continue going past when I finish with the coverage of John Carter, Warlord of Mars, I'm going to be rereading this book. I mean, this is probably some of the best $25 of comic book money I've ever spent. So anyway, let's get on to talking about this issue. Now, the last issue of John Carter, Warlord of Mars, uh, we left uh, John Carter in a pretty pickle. Uh, He was searching for Sola. Sola is Tars Tarkas's 
daughter. She had been lost in the desert for weeks, and they didn't know because nobody knew that she was actually going to where she was going. She was going to visit her father. The people who knew she was going there didn't know she didn't get there, and her father didn't know she was coming. So she's been lost in the desert for a very long time. And so John Carter and Tars Tarkas decide to go catch, go find her, find out what happened to her. Unfortunately, what happened to her, well, we're going to find out exactly what. But as they were looking, they found one building that she could have been in. And it was just this great big giant cathedral of skulls and bones. And as they entered it, it was seemingly alive and it was teeming with skeleton warriors. And then there was one beastly zombie looking thing that took control of Tarstarkus. And so they're fighting skeletons and they're very scared, haunted house type scared thing. And uh, this is before alien, but I'm reminded of, you know, just the living of uh, the, 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 the organic look to some of the ships uh, in alien for, for the, the, well, <laughs> the aliens, the 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 dead alien from the beginning. I, I'm reminded of that kind of thing. I'm reminded of H.R. Giger's uh, other art, uh, where you have bones constructing the walls and the machines and stuff like that. So there's a little bit of that here uh, in this place. And there's skeleton warriors as well, and they're fighting. And uh, Tars Tarkas, though, comes across the beastly-looking zombie thing, and it takes control of Tars Tarkas. And so now John Carter is basically fighting the building, fighting the skeleton warriors that inhabit the building and also fighting his best friend who is under mind control uh, from a beastly, hairy, decomposing zombie thing. We don't know what that thing is. We just know he's up to no good, especially when he zaps Tars Tarkas with eye, eye beams. So that's where we left John. And obviously, you know, he is being held then by skeleton hands that are coming out of a wall and Tars Tarkas is about to strike a killing blow. And obviously, uh, John Carter was not killed by the, the killing blow. We, we know he's not going to be. The question is, how is he going to get out of it? And this is probably the weakest moment of the issue is how does he get out of it? By trying harder to get away from those skeleton hands. And he gets out and uh, he fights. And, you know, the trying harder thing, it's a it's a wrestling thing. It's a Godzilla thing. It's a sci fi fantasy television trope a cartoon trope where the bad guys got you down and you just try harder and then you defeat the bad guy. And that's what they use here. The the cliffhanger from last issue didn't even need to happen. The, the resolution here in this issue is kind of a, an anticlimax. It doesn't matter though. We ended with a, uh, just a, a, a rip roaring uh, cliffhanger from last issue. If, even if the artwork wasn't, that satisfying. And for this issue, we step into it and we just have to keep the story moving. And when I first read it, I'm thinking to myself, oh, that's kind of an anticlimax. But when I see where the issue takes us, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter because the issue takes us into some places that I like John Carter taking me. So he's not killed. He gets away. He battles through skeletons. He battles through the building. He fights Tars Tarkas a couple more times, finally knocks him unconscious. And then he finally finds Sola, who's in this pit. Uh, just being kept prisoner and he gets her out of there and they escape. He escapes with Tars Tarkas and Sola while the undead looking monster man guy looks on. So while Tars Tarkas recovers under medical care with uh, John Carter and, and Deja Thoris and Sola worrying about him while he's recovering, we get our first view of the monster man beast that really puts him in context. And that is he is leading 
an army of skeleton warriors, and he's getting ready to lead them on a long march to attack the people of Helium because today is the day Helium will fall. Or maybe in a couple days because it's a long, long march to get to where <laughs> they want to go, which is the city where John Carter is right now. So John Carter wants to examine and he wants to take a look at that cathedral thing. And he and his best friend, Cantos Khan, his other best friend, his, his Martian best friend. Well, I guess they're all Martians, but the Redskin Martian best friend. They take a skimmer to go back to the fortress. But before they arrive, they find an army of skeletons. And they swoop down and they try and take some of them out with their ship. But the skeletons just hang on and they end up crashing. They fight. They're both knocked unconscious. And this is where we get into some really awful stuff, like some really awful stuff uh, for me anyway. Just thinking about uh, what this what, what the implications of of what uh, the the weird zombie man creature beast thing does to them. Uh, they're under, they're unconscious and they're kept alive for some reason, but they are tied up and dragged on their back through the rocky, sandy Martian desert. This is brutal. I mean, rug burns bother me. When I was a kid falling on my bike on the concrete bothered me. It, it hurts. It really, really hurts. It's not fun. They're being dragged miles and miles and miles and miles. Uh, and then they're not wearing a lot of clothes. You know, they're wearing loincloths and ornate, you know, flowy robe thingies that, that hang from their belt or whatever. But they just have sashes like over their chest, if that. And this is not looking like a very comfortable type of travel method to use. Uh, clearly, this is not. Uh, what the tour guides would say, if you want to see Mars, you definitely need to take the skeleton warrior led by a zombie looking man beast who have tied you up by your hands and are now dragging you on your back to see the sights. That's just not the way you're going to do it. So they're dragged on their backs through the stony sand. They arrive at the city. The city is under siege now by these skeleton warriors and John Carter wakes up, he breaks his bonds, he goes to fight, and he confronts the beastly zombie thing guy, and it's now time for backstory. So they fight, the beast guy uses his power to slam John Carter into a wall and hold him there uh, with basically psychic bonds. And so now we want to find out who is this guy and why is he doing what he's doing? Well, who is this guy? His name is Zuvin D'Arc. And I say D'Arc because there's an apostrophe in there so it's it's not zuvin dark it's zuvin dark he's a centuries old evil guy who made a bond with the dark gods who was sentenced to be buried in a pit in the desert to die but because of his bond with the dark gods you know everyone else died first he just stayed alive he lived through it and it's Spent the ages underneath the desert. Spent the ages alive, buried alive, and rotting. So his flesh, I mean, he's not rotting as, as quickly as it would, you know, if it was done in real time. But even so, it's not good for him. But uh, Tars Darkus's daughter, when she arrived and came over where he was living 
she gave him the boost of power he needed to survive. And the basically the palace of bones rose up from the desert because of Sola kind of giving him, I guess, like a psychic boost or something like that that he needed and uh, to bring these other dead to life. And I actually wonder if the intention here, and maybe I glossed over this and didn't see this, uh, or maybe it's just an implication, but I wonder is the intention that these bones of these dead people, are they actually the civilization or the remains of the civilization that, that, that cursed him to be put into this pit in the first place. Now they meant it as an execution, but it turned into a curse of immortality because of the dark gods. And so now is he bringing them to life now to, to go and attack? Well, it's the dead versus the living. And I'm going to go ahead and turn to that last page and, and just read the last bit of the monologue because the lettering here, I don't talk about lettering a lot, although I do love lettering. I, I do lettering myself. But he wants to topple the nation. He wants to destroy helium. And that's where, where he, he finishes. Uh, he The building that John Carter is smashed into, he causes that to crumble. At least that's what it looks like. And he says, now you know, little fool, tonight is the night. Helium dies. And for the most part, now this guy's nude throughout the whole thing, and that's kind of gross, but uh, if you think about it, there's nothing seen. Um, I'm assuming it's not because there's nothing there. It's just good shading, uh, plenty of shadows in the right places for him to not have to wear any tatters of clothing. All of the images of him tend to have a human... Uh, form to it and and the the right um proportions of a of a human just with rotting flesh dripping from his his hands as he moves around and l no lips really to speak of lots of gnarled gangly teeth um but uh, the the gnarled gangly teeth and all that it's it's a good effect but that last image of him it's kind of a weird one, and the the perspective is odd and adds it just makes him look more monstrous. And I can't decide if it's actually intentional and a good thing or not. But for the most part, the artwork here is really, really good. I don't have any complaints about the artwork. In fact, when he's giving his backstory, there's some interesting storytelling perspective that they use. And I've used this before in some of my scripts where you have time moving, but the character within the panel is in the same spot. And they do that where he's he's uh, getting arrested after he talks about how he made a bond with the dark gods. And then they show him in front of a tribunal with his hands. His hands are up when he's arrested and then his hands are in front of him. So this is all from the back. His hands are in front of him, presumably in bonds. And then they show him uh, being covered up by um, people, who, masons or whatever, being covered up in these gigantic boulder brick kind of things. And his hands are out and to the side as, as if he's resigning himself to this fate. And it's a nice effect. The character doesn't move from the center of the panel. It's the same perspective of each shot, but the this is just different placement. And so I don't know if that was a choice of the artist or if that was something that Marv Wolfman thought would be really, really neat. Or if Marv Wolfman just, you know, writing Marvel style, just wrote, um, Let's show the passage of time. He's being arrested. He's in front of the tribunal. He's being buried alive. 
And whether or not it was intentional and on whose part it was intentional, I mean, I know it was intentional, but uh, whoever's part it was, where whatever step of the process it came from, it's very, very effective. And, and most of the artwork in this issue is very, very effective. Lots of skeletons fighting, lots of, you know, very Ray, Ray Harryhausen kind of thing, making me think of, uh, you know, the, the Sinbad movie. But yeah, it's it's good stuff. Good, good stuff. Again, um, well worth it. I mean, I, I'm I'm not even quite halfway through the volume that I'm holding, uh, but these issues the ones I've read already, if this is your kind of thing, man, uh, or woman, I guess, uh, go for it. This is this is good, good stuff. Um, so a couple other things I wanted to touch on is, uh, first of all, the walking army of dead. <laughs> this in the 70s could not have existed in a movie setting. And this is one of those things where we talk about or we used to really talk about how, well, why would you want to work in comics uh, frequently in interviews? When people have talked to me about the, the comic books that I've been writing, they'd ask me, why do you want to work in comics and not in film? And my answer usually would be um, in my head. It was why well, I, I would like to work in, in film. But my answer to them was usually something along the lines of, you know, there's things you can do in comics that you can't do in film. That's not as true anymore, although it still costs bundles of money to make those effects happen that you couldn't do uh, back in the 70s or without you know spending bundles of money for these special you know practical effects or stop motion animation like I was talking about with Ray Harryhausen and the 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 skeletons that that uh, that Sinbad battles but in this case um, they could never have done this as a movie Never in a million years. Uh, some of these things are just wild and just it, there's so much animation to it. There's a lot. Of, there's a, just a life to the page as swords slash through bones. And as you know, skeletons are, you know, just falling from the sky from their skimmer and that kind of thing. It's great, great stuff. Uh, something else that I've already talked about um, the, the artistic writing here, but something else kind of getting into the writing is this kind of a funny little bit of uh, talk about faith and prayer and religion. And, you know, as, as John Carter knocks out Tars Tarkas, he, uh, he talks about there's, there's a, this way, there's a chance we may all survive this madness, providing I find the master behind the blasphemy and referring to the, the bones in this kind of castle of bone. And, then in the captioning, he says, I am not a religious man, though I never scorn those who feel they must turn to some nebulous God for prayer. But at moments like this, I oftentimes wish I had a strong belief in a supreme deity who avenged evil and rewarded good. For certainly Tars Tarkas would then rise from his mindless coma and willingly face the dread unknown beside me. Now, he says all of that. And the first thing that happens when he finds Sola is, Sola, is that you in the darkness? John Carter? then my prayers are answered. And so it's just kind of a, a nice little play there where, you know, this is a guy and I, I don't understand, you know, you have the Marvel universe and there are clearly gods and there is a personification of eternity. There is a personification of death. There's a personification of time. And with all of that, it doesn't make sense for, characters now this is john carter this is not that 
uh, but he's witnessed so much supernatural, but he's kind of, you know, well, I, I don't believe in that stuff or I don't believe in a higher power. And I guess it kind of goes down to that. Um, you know, those things that happen are against me. And, you know, I guess Conan's prayer where, you know, listen to my prayer, crom or whatever. Um, I'm talking about the, from the movie, but you know, if, if you're there and you hear me and you answer my prayer, great. If you don't, well then whatever, um, or to hell with you, I guess is what he says. But, uh, I, I can't imagine Conan just being, hey, oh, whatever, you know, but anyway, um, poor, poor characterizations of Conan aside, uh, this John Carter comic continues a string of wild, fun, and interesting sci-fi pulp fantasy stories and again once again rounding off my reading with something that was a positive experience and with john carter even when it hasn't been the most positive compared to other john carter comics it's always been a positive experience so um there is no copy here about the next issue uh but the uh the cover for the next issue promises, just like he said, uh, you know, Zar, Zar Zuvin Dark, Zuvin Dark, sorry, says tonight is the night Helium dies. The cover of the next issue tells us this is the day Helium died. And so issue 14, who knows what's going to happen? I'm not sure if this is the end of the story arc or if we are still in the middle of this story. We will find out next time. As for the next segment of the coverage of this month, it'll be Ben's Bullpen Bulletin, as usual, which rounds off, I guess, again, the reading, although I'm not doing it as in-depth of a of coverage with, with that, uh, with Devil Dinosaur and Machine Man. So for this episode, for this segment here, this is finishing the coverage of June 1978. And as we finish the coverage of June 1978 cover date, we're going to be taking a look at a couple different comics, uh, actually three, uh, Devil Dinosaur, which is the spiritual uh, sequel to a lot of the prehistorical material that Jack Kirby was creating for his 2001 A Space Odyssey. At least that's the way I kind of look at it as he turns that into somewhat of a Saturday morning cartoon. And then there's Machine Man, which is not a spiritual sequel. It's an actual sequel. And then there is Crazy Magazine, which in this month released uh, their parody of Close Encounters of the Third Kind. And then we'll also take a look at the ads. So starting with, did I already mention the ads? I'm kind of losing my mind here. I guess the first place to start would, and probably the best place to start is uh, with the worst of the worst. And, and that is the uh, crazy magazine parody of close encounters of the third kind. Now the crazy magazine is basically the same thing as your mad magazine where it's taking pot shots at pop culture. And sometimes it's funny and sometimes it's not. And I did read the story uh, that, that takes uh, pot shots at close encounters of the third kind. They call it clearly encountered for the 30th time. And they're basically just kind of pointing out, here's things we've seen before. And in every panel, there's a different, not every panel, but almost every panel, there's a different alien from a different movie or TV show. And um, basically it comes down to 
you know, they're acting like this is a big deal because these aliens are coming, but there's been aliens here before and uh, it's not very good. I don't recommend, you know, oh, search this out. If you're a fan of Close Encounters of the Third Kind, you cannot afford to miss this. Uh, you can. You can totally afford to miss it. Uh, but taking a look at some of the other things that Marvel had for this month, March of 1978, we already talked about uh, the, the movie adaptation, Marvel Comics Super Special Number 3, Close Encounters of the Third Kind. But, you know, they, they were still doing the Hanna-Barbera stuff. There was the Flintstones and Laugh Olympics. And uh, they were, you know, what if for this month was what if the Avengers had fought evil during the 1950s? It looks like a good one. I love what ifs. Um, and then they had the magazines, Savage Sword of Conan and Rav- Ra- Ravaging Hulk, Rampaging Hulk. Ravaging Hulk would be a completely different thing. Ravishing Hulk would be another thing altogether. And then, of course, there's Devil Dinosaur and Machine Man. Now, Devil Dinosaur issue number three is pretty cool looking. It's got a cover of this big, huge giant uh, swinging a stegosaurus, or he calls it a bone back, by the tail while Devil Dinosaur and Moon Boy look on. The cover copy is... It just says devil and moon boy face the prehistoric might of giant. The cover illustration is definitely what carries the cover. The cover copy, not so much, but, uh, you know, I do like this though. In an age of monsters, he was the mightiest of all devil dinosaur. And then there's the, uh, the copy inside right above the title on the, on the opening splash page. It says in the misty reaches of the prehistoric past in the days before the fall of the great lizards, there lived a creature, the likes of which the world had never seen in his time. He strode through the Valley of flame, like a giant red scaled demon, his only companion, a young Dawn man called moon boy devil dinosaur edited, written and drawn by Jack Kirby embellished by Mike Rover colored by P Goldberg and I don't even know what this is supposed to mean. Well, I know what it's supposed to mean. Apparently he has an editor here. It's Archie Goodwin. They call him the plenipotentiary. Plenipotentiary? Plenipotentiary. I do not know. I do not want to know. Uh, The story is just simply called Giant, and it is pretty much what you would expect from the cover. Moon Boy and Devil Dinosaur. Uh, encounter a giant and the giant I, I neglected to mention this from the cover illustration the giant is wearing the head <laughs> the skull <laughs> as a helmet uh, he's wearing the skull of a uh, thunder horn head that's what they call a triceratops a thunder horn head and this story brings what you would expect it to bring in the nighttime scenes. There is mist and there's fire and there's bombast and there's crashing of trees and shattering of bones and special effects like, like crack and roar and crash and thwomp and scrock and bam crash, bam crash. Uh, that's a pretty good one right there. Bam crash and rip. 
and Roka. Now, what is Roka? Well, that's actually a battle cry from this giant warrior. And this giant warrior, he has come to claim something in the forest. And he is not letting anything get in his way. And as he's just destroying everything in his way, as he's killing dinosaurs, as he goes along, uh, Moonboy is kind of following him. But then Moonboy gets grabbed by a giant hand. And you think it's from this giant. It turns out it's not. It's actually from what looks to be the giant's son. And so you have these two warriors, two giant massive beast warriors, the giant with the Triceratops head on his head as a helmet and devil dinosaur who are in conflict. And it's just brute force battle. And then you have a smaller giant uh, who has Moon Boy in his clutches. And the smaller giant, it turns out, is the son of the larger giant. Devil Dinosaur almost defeats him, but Moon Boy convinces Devil Dinosaur to help him from the pit of... Is it a water pit? Uh, I guess a water pit. That would be a, a pond, right? Uh, he pulls him out because Moon Boy says, no, he was just here to find his cub. And so the giants come out, and the boy, the cub giant, he... He will be back. He is angry because Devil Dinosaur almost killed his his dad. But the dad says, no, don't worry. We have a truce now. You have fought with honor and power. And the Dinosaur Dispatch, which is Jack Kirby, uh, again, writing this essay about why he's doing what he's doing and, and what he's doing. And he basically talks through, you know, these are the prehistoric X age. This is a different kind of X age. And maybe someday we'll tell stories of the superheroes from the Greek and the Roman times, uh, the Trojan Wars and, and that kind of thing. But for now, we're doing prehistoric with uh, with Devil Dinosaur and Moon Boy. And again, this is just uh, three issue three. Same kind of thing where it's 17 pages of story. That one page of copy, again, I'm reading my time machine here, taking me back to read this, is a hardcover omnibus, much, much slimmer. I bought it at cover price because it's so slim. Uh, it was a much cheaper cover price. But uh, this, it's a fun story. It, there's not much meat to it other than uh, you have the two smaller companions in a battle of wits and the two larger warriors in a battle of brute force. And it's Jack Kirby. And I have really gained an appreciation for Jack Kirby by reading these. I don't know if I want to try and read some of the extended stuff that he was doing uh, with the new gods and all that kind of thing. I don't know if I want to take the chance of some of those longer runs sullying my opinion of him. The the graphic novel uh, Hunger Dogs, uh, that was good but to me uh it's not the same kind of thing as we have here where he's just trying to tell these stories that i just almost have a feeling like he's just trying to just get the stuff out on the page and he doesn't really have rhyme or reason in mind he's just i want to do a story about a guy who's wearing a triceratops head for a helmet and and so he does so speaking of that kind of, I have a story I want to tell and I'm going to tell it. Let's move on to Jack Kirby's Machine Man. This is something a little harder to describe. Devil Dinosaur is pretty 
uh, it's, it's surface level stuff. You know, there might be some subtext in there. There might be some subtleties in there. But for the most part, it's pretty easy to say there is the conflict. It's prehistory, whatever. It's it's the conflict is pretty simple. Devil Dinosaur and Moonboy want to survive. And, you know, there's going to be some sci fi stuff coming up that I remember. But Machine Man, the living robot. This is the story of X-51. A thinking computer in the form of a man. As Aaron Stack, he tries to find a place in a world that's not quite ready for his kind. But will he find it as friend, foe, or the greatest hero of them all? Machine Man, the living robot. Uh, he's not the greatest hero of them all. I, I can say that right now. In um, this issue, from across the universe comes the malevolent menace of 10-4, the mean machine. And 4 is not spelled with a U. It's 10 Four F O R the mean machine and it just there's wonkiness here there's definite wonkiness there's definite energy there's fire on the page I mean the the opening two page splash so you have a, a splash page a machine man who's putting his fingers on a man's head and he's projecting what the man is thinking about on on the wall or, or kind of like a hologram kind of thing um, because the man's crazy. Because he's been talking about uh, this alien who's dying uh, in a spaceship that's falling into a sun. And it turns out it's actually, it's it's a, uh, an SOS. Uh, he is asking for help. He needs help to survive as his ship is falling into a sun. And the, the double page splash showing the ship falling into the sun, it's, it's wonderful. It's great. But as we go along, uh, it gets weird. Uh, which should not be of any any surprise. They decide the man is not crazy. They decide they're going to try and help bring the alien from across the universe, and they create a machine. Machine Man creates a machine that's going to bring him from that side of the universe, from that sun, and into our world. They accidentally send uh, the office uh, some of the office supplies into that the space out there. But Machine Man is able to use the machine and is able to bring the alien back. Now, this alien thing is, uh, what, 10-4, I guess. But he is not grateful. Instead, he attacks as aliens are wont to do. And as he attacks, of course, Machine Man is going to have to to do battle or whatever and he doesn't want to but uh and then the thing escapes and machine man realizes the, the entire world is in danger uh the next issue is <laughs> coming see it and gasp battle on a very busy street yes they are going to do battle on a very busy street now, the one interesting thing that I do want to point out about both these issues, the one that I read with Devil Dinosaur and this one, most of the story is the art is done on a six panel grid. So it's two, two and two on the page. Basically, they're squares, uh, square panels, same height, same same width. Every once in a while, you know, there will be a panel or a page where it's two panels, then one and then two. Not a lot of variance except for to create bigger panels from those panel sizes until we get to the end where you get some four panel pages. It's just very interesting to me that Jack Kirby, you know, I, I almost feel like it's, it's just so he can just get it done. He is doing this so he can 
get it done in time to meet the deadlines. He's not really going crazy with any kind of page layouts. It's just very simple to lay out a page like this and to choose if he's going to do one panel or two panels in a tier or put them together or make them into something a little bit bigger. And and of course, the army is after Machine Man. Now, the interesting thing with this story is in his page of copy, in his essay, he says, I can tell you that when I draw him, I visualize Machine Man not as number X51, but as Aaron Stack, a nice young man of 26 with good scholastic credentials and a person of positive and constructive qualities. The thoughts of cold, hard steel and finger weapon systems and electronic units are far from my mind until the action starts. He's not a robot, as far as I'm concerned. Somewhere in his wild, wired brain is a godlike element similar or exactly the same as the one which establishes me as a human being. And that's a good place as a writer to, to go, you know, is to be able to look at your character as a, as a character. And for him to look at this character as not just an unfeeling robot, but as a a human who has desires and wants. And that's one of the first places you start when you're writing is what does this character want? And when they enter into a scene, there's the what do they want in general for their life? But then there's what do they want to get from whatever interaction they're about to have? And that's where you also get into, you know, having secrets, keeping information from each other. Uh, The thing is. You know, he he's a he's very much a humanist. This robot is. Uh, but we're not getting a lot of the uh, everyday life stuff that I was expecting from his essays. I was expecting to get a robot next door kind of story. And instead, we're getting these just he, there's no time for that to do the crazy cosmic storytelling that Jack Kirby wants to do. And I. I I don't know if we're going to get it. I hope we do. I want to see some of the stuff that Jack Kirby has been promising of this. He's just the guy next door. He just happens to have, you know, atomic heart or whatever he has inside. But like I've said, the energy is here. The art, you know, even pages or panels rather where they're just standing and not doing anything. It's good. It's it's there's an energy to it. There's one panel where, um, the army is filing in. They're about ready to enter the town where Machine Man has taken up residence. And the panel that ends that sequence is the general's hand just up in the air waiting to make the order for the command to fire. And then beyond it in the background is the town. And it's just a simple, simple panel. But it's one of those things that, um, you know, so you have what they call Kirby tech all over the place. But then you also have this very simple thing of a simple town and a simple hand conveying the power of the and the authority of, of this general. And I just have to give Jack Kirby my kudos. This is a talented, talented man. Obviously, everyone already knows this. Everyone except for me. I did not until I started this podcast here. I mean, I knew him as a luminary, but here I'm. I don't know if I'm learning from him as a master. I'm not an artist and, uh, but I am learning some storytelling techniques here, I guess. And it's, it's been fun to do now taking a look at the magazine, uh, from this month, there's basically the same stuff. You know, you have Johnny bench selling bats and you have the secret agent spy scope where that kid 
is using his pen-sized telescope to spy on a dude who is about to be romantic with a girl on a beach where they are both wearing swimsuits. And it's just, what are they trying to say you should be doing here? Um, I don't know. Uh, There's all of the flea market pages, which, you know, that has all the things, the cool things I wish I had had. There's another boring ad for pizzazz. I mean, they're trying to take this magazine. That's supposed to be this exciting, not boring magazine, but it's just an ad with lots and lots of words and a horrible illustration. I think it's supposed to be illustrated by a child because the magazine is for children, but it is, it's this weird kid with curly hair holding very small rectangles in his hand. I believe they're meant to be pizzazz magazine. I'm not sure behind him is this blonde girl with braids who has her arm around his shoulders or her shoulders. Maybe I don't know. And what makes it just terrible is the next page over is <laughs> it's uh, wonder bread, white bread. Uh, it's a page. It's got a boy and a girl there and they are, wonderfully drawn in very cartoony style as they're eating a piece of bread with peanut butter and jelly on it. And then it is uh, advertising free trading cards that are in each bag of bread of close encounters of the third kind. Um, I can't imagine kids getting excited about close encounters of the third kind like that, but I guess maybe, maybe there's another page for uh, i think i might have talked about this but there's a page full page ad for star wars action figures and it shows han solo chewbacca and the art is pretty decent it looks like it's artwork from someone who's taken a look at the poster and then looked at some of the action figures but then whoever colored it didn't really know what they were coloring r2d2 has this reddish uh color to him and han solo's wearing green but you know what? I would see this ad and I would want all those figures. I would want all of them. Uh, there's not much more than that. I mean, there's still the satisfy your meat tooth with the uh, werewolf who's eating a, a Slim Jim. And there's the Adventures of Grit Boy who makes it look really, really cool to sell things, uh, to win prizes by selling the Grit magazine. There's the official Star Wars fan club. But yeah. That's basically June 1978 from Marvel as far as their licensed comic books go in a nutshell. And I believe that's it for me then, too. Uh, thank you for listening. And next will be July cover date, 1978. We'll be taking a look at Star Wars. We'll be taking a look at John Carter, Warlord of Mars. We'll be taking a look at Man from Atlantis, all those things. I'm enjoying doing this. I hope you are enjoying listening to it. If you are enjoying it, please drop me a line. Let me know. Information is in the credits of the show. Uh, but until next time, I really just have to say thank you for listening. Keep reading comics. Support your local comic shop. And above all else, wherever you go, whether you are a dinosaur riding cave boy or the robot next door, thank you for listening and Godspeed.